So, Bob, you and I are in-person podcasting together. First time in 14, 15 months? We haven't, February? We haven't, we haven't podcasted in the same room in a very, very long time. Long time. And we don't have to talk over Zoom. No. You don't have to sit in this very precarious way <laughs> so that the microphone is close enough, but, but also you're not bumping the microphone. Right. You could just sit down in my office. Yeah. I, I got everything set up. Uh-huh. And you're in person. We can actually like touch each other's fingers, like we just <laughs> did right there, and everything's fine. Let's get into it. What do you say, Bob? Yes. This is the Psychology and Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirkana. I'm a therapist and a professor, and I am your friend Bob from graduate school 100 years ago, and a therapist in practice here in Seattle. So the first thing I want to say for from Berto, uh, from Bob and I is that I want to thank everyone for the emails and Patreon comments regarding our last episode yeah. that we I think we called it uh, two therapists crying or something, and a, a lot of people reached out and were extremely kind to both of us, particularly to Bob about his vulnerability and um, our friendship. In our friendship, and, yeah. and people were with us. Yeah. People were crying with us. They were feeling with us. Yeah. And it uh, just really brings the two of us a lot of joy and yes. fulfillment and uh, connection to, um, to have you all reach out to us. So thank you for that. Thank you. It was really lovely. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're curious and you want to listen to the episode, you have to be a patron of the podcast. Uh, this next email... And you might be able to hear the puppy whining outside the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob actually got a chance to meet our new puppy oh, in person yeah. uh, for the first time. And not that many people have come over. And so our new puppy is extremely not used to human beings actually walking through the door. Yeah. Um, the joke I said when you walked in is the puppy is wondering why the delivery guy <laughs> actually came in the house because usually <laughs> the only humans that come out to the door are delivery people or, you know, uh, Grubhub people. And so the dog, the puppy was like extremely <laughs> freaking out. Um, but anyway, patron Alina says, Dear Kirk and Bob, why don't we have more models for emotional intimacy and vulnerability and friendship as you and Bob have demonstrate in, mm. demonstrated in recent podcasts? I just wanted to thank you both for a recent podcast where you have been so open with each other personally and have such a wonderfully modeled emotionally intimacy and vulnerability and friendship. We almost never see this. In TV and movies, these experiences between friends are usually just a setup that they're on their way to being a couple or, or having sex, or if it's between two men, it's a setup for some homophobic joke. So, Bob, why don't we have more models like this in, in culture? Oh, well, I probably the obvious reasons um um intimacy is there's a male model of there's a model of maleness that has to do with stoicism and um efficiency and um not having softer, tender, vulnerable emotions even though all humans have their soft, tender, vulnerable emotions. Um I think it's mostly that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Another email, patron Sam from Austria. She says, hi, Dr. Kirk and Bob. My father died yesterday. Mm. Thing is, he abandoned me when I was about five years old. Mm. My mother had to tell me lies why he was not visiting me when I was a child. 
Now I don't really know how to grieve the loss of him. Hmm. It feels like I am more grieving the relationship I wish I had. I'm kind of sad, but I also don't care. And then I am sad because I don't care. I would really appreciate your thoughts on grieving someone who wasn't really there. Uh, Bob, what do you think? Well, I'm very sorry about all of that, your father passing, but I like what you're saying about grieving the loss. How did you put it? Um, Of what you wish you had. What you wish you had. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, grief is kind of, grief is not what we think. It often is not what we think it's going to be. Grief is kind of like a river. And the river's going to go the way the river's going to go. And the only thing you can do or I can do or anybody can do is just be in the river. And we can be in the river and flow down gracefully and along with the current, whichever way it turns. Or we can fight it and flow down clumsily. And we're going to go down either way. Um, um, But fighting it is a lot of storm and a lot of effort and and, um, a lot of coughing and sputtering. So... I guess what I mean to say is that your grief is going to turn the way it's going to turn and the things that are important to you don't have to be the things that um, other people say should or shouldn't be important to you. Um, It's as you said, the relationship that you wish you had had is what's most poignant to you. So I think that you recognizing that is really smart and um, um, maybe that's what you're going to be most sad about. Mm Mm-hmm. You had a complicated relationship with your dad. Yes. Did this have a similar effect when he died? You know, yeah, I could say yes. The first thing that stands out is the day he passed, he was at the hospital. And uh, for some reason, my Sibs and I found ourselves in the room with his body, just the four of us. I don't know where my mom was and Colleen was around, but I don't know where she was. And so it was just the four of us sort of just talking about him a little bit over, you know, and uh, remembering some things. And then we left and I remember the most awful feeling that we were abandoning him. And I couldn't imagine his body being carried out by strangers to the funeral home. And then the next we saw him, you know, my people are Catholic, so they do open casket things. And he didn't look like himself. And so my mom very gracefully shut the casket. Anyways, when we took him to the cemetery where he's buried, I had the same terrible feeling that we are abandoning him. It was just really, I didn't know that that's, I think that must be common, but I had never experienced anything like that before. Just this like utter like awfulness, like we've left him behind. And you know, I, on the other hand, I know, you know, what were we going to do? Like, I'm not going to bring his body home. It's just silly, but it just felt really weird to leave him. Yeah. It felt really, it felt weird to leave him. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what about the grief of the what you wished you could have had? Did you feel any of that? Hmm. It's a little bit hard to talk about. Um. No, I don't. I don't experience grief that way. And you know, one of the things about me is I've lived far away from my dad for most of my life. Um, certainly, all of my adulthood, and. Um, so I don't have, I didn't have regular contact with them. Like my sibs do. They all live near, near wherever we grew up. And, um, um, us having a complicated relationship and me living far away in many ways insulated me from 
um, the difficulties that I had with him and also from his decline. My brothers, uh, my sister really looked after him through his medical care. I, I had very little to do with that. And um, so let's see. Uh, uh, I can't remember what you asked. Well, she's talking about how the, uh, you know, she had a complicated relationship with him and, yeah. and, and he abandoned her. Yeah. And when he died, she says, I don't really know how to grieve because on one hand, I feel bad that he's gone. But on the other hand, yeah. I, I'm guessing, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I, I don't know if I should miss him yeah. because, and I don't know if I do miss him. Right. Because he he harmed me, right? And now I'm kind of beating myself up because maybe I feel like right. I should feel bad feelings because yeah. he was my dad, right? Did you have any of those kind of complicated? Yeah, um, I think the way the path of my grief is really different from my sibs' uh, path of grief, and um, I think they feel more acutely sad than than I do or did, um, and that's that's. Um, it's not confusing to me, but it's, um, I, I notice that I'm, I care about what they would think of me knowing what they know about how my feeling about my father passing is really different from theirs where they feel, um, waves of sadness. I don't really have that, that much. And, uh, it's, that's a sort of a tender spot for me because, um, you know, it's your family. You'd like it's like the the person who wrote in is saying, you know, you're supposed to have certain kind of valence and certain kind of feeling. And I, um, I don't have a lot of that. Um, I suppose it'd be different if I were there. I it would be different if I were there because I'd have all these reminders of you know him and and our grown up. My mother still lives in in the same house. Um, well, do you think you were more aware of the? negative side of his personality than your siblings were? That is an interesting question. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, uh, particularly your younger brother, right? You know, I think I had a different... Well, let's see. Everybody's different. I heard Marsha Linehan say this once. She said... People growing up in the same household are going to have vastly different experiences of their family, even living under the same roof. So I think my experience of my growing up years is different from my sibs. Um, and I think I have been noisier about my complaints about that and um, have perhaps been more frustrated than they have. Um, um, with with my with my parents' response to that, um, I think I've probably been angrier, or at least uh, outwardly expressive of anger more than more than my sibs. Um, Do you think they just dealt with it differently, or yeah. denied it, or maybe. forgave him more easily, or maybe that last one? Yeah, yeah. And you know, if I were living there. And having interactions with him, I bet there would have been more conflict, and there might have been more opportunity for for forgiveness. I guess that's a way to put it, um, or reconciliation between us. 
or understanding. I, I think that might be true. It also might be true that we just simply would have not gotten along. Um, I think the things I wanted and um, asked for were quite a lot to for them to... That would have been a lot yeah. for them. And you don't feel shame or guilt about that difference between you and your siblings? Yeah, I do, actually. Oh. I feel uh, fear about it that they would you know, say, listen to this and be upset with me. I do feel fear about that. Um, and what's really hard for me is to maintain and hold on to my own position and my own voice um, with this story inside about them being, you know, upset with me because my memory and my experience doesn't match theirs. That, that would be hard for me. Um, that said, in the conflicts I have had uh, since my father passed um, between me and my mom, my sibs have been nothing but decent to me. They, they're, despite our differences, one of the, my best memories of my sibs is when my father passed, um, how, how we all sort of pulled together. And, um, I felt like a member of this really lovely family. Mm. Yeah. They're, my sibs are people I would choose as friends. Um, even if we weren't related, mm. they're really, can't always say that about our sibs, but they're really just lovely. Yeah. 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 Okay. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. I don't know that they listen to this podcast. I think my sister does every now and again. Um, and I don't know how they respond if they heard this. They might, you know, they might have a hard time with it. And the hard part for me is hanging on. That's what I wanted to say is hanging on to my position um, in the face of um, disapproval of another is actually really hard. And so what I really like about uh, what the person who wrote in is saying is that th- th- she, she, they, they already recognized that um, what their story is and how perhaps it does not match, the, you know, the cultural but expectation and they're hanging on to it anyways. I'd say your best bet is hanging, keep doing that. It's meaning to you as it's meaning to you. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that. Sure. Um, you, and, you know a lot about grief. You've been studying grief and reading about grief and learning about grief for most of your career. Yeah, I don't know if I know a lot, but I will say that a lot of things are possible when we are grieving and mm-hmm. our tendency to shame others and ourselves regarding our natural reactivity is profound and <laughs> pervasive. And there's always these questions of like, is there something wrong with me? And if you're having a, you know, you go bungee jumping and you have, I'm sure, cause I've never gone bungee. Have you ever gone bungee jumping? No. Yeah. Um, terrifying, right? Yeah. But we can imagine that if you did, it wouldn't be exactly as you imagined it. No. But somehow we're like, well, I didn't know, you know, I, I, I didn't, I've never been through a bungee jump before. So I didn't know that your stomach felt that way or that, um, it felt confined to have my legs tied up like that (laughs) or, uh, that the wind was so, uh, strong that my, I couldn't look. So I was just with my, you know, who knows what the experience is. Well, the same as with grief, if you've never been through it, then you don't, or the kind of situation you're in, you don't know what that is, but somehow we always like, there's something wrong with me. Yeah. Because we shame p- 
people for their emotions and I think grief in particular in our mm-hmm. society and the depictions of grief in popular culture are so limited and so um, reflective of our uh, silly understanding of what mm. grief is supposed to look like. You know, you're supposed to look up to the sky and say, no, <laughs> and you're supposed to cry. And then a week later, you're fine. And uh, the next episode of Star Trek is on. You know what I mean? Uh, Tasha Yar has died, and uh, Worf has has done his mourning. And the next episode, it's on to another adventure, and you never talk about it again. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have this propensity to shame ourselves. But um, so yeah, it's totally you know, there grief or loss more specifically has so many possibilities when one has a parent who is uh, a antagonist in your life has been bad to you in some ways and they die. It is completely understandable to one have complicated feelings two have no feelings three have delayed feelings four have continued anger Five two have sadness about what could have been, and I've heard that before. I've heard that is the, you know can be a dominant feeling of. I always wished I didn't realize this, but I always wished that we could have had a good relationship. And although I didn't really pursue it in the last ten or twenty years because I'd given up, I guess there was still a part of me that thought that could happen. Yeah. And now that he's dead that possibility is just gone. Even though if I think about it rationally, it was gone from the beginning, but now it's really gone. Yeah. And that makes me really sad. I think that's, you know, totally understandable. Right. And just while I'm going down the list of what we will typically shame ourselves for is relief. People will feel relief upon the loss of, of someone or a pet or something. And then they'll feel guilty about that. They might feel like, well, I'm, I'm happy that they've moved on to the other side or so, you know, there's just a ver- variety of feelings and all of them are fine. Uh, you know, it, it's human, it's normal, uh, life is complicated and loss is complicated. Anonymous, anonymous upper tier patron writes in, what are your thoughts on not hearing from my boyfriend one day per week? What are your thoughts on not hearing from my boyfriend one day per week? He is avoidant, and I am preoccupied. It took me years to convince him to con- to commit to a long-term relationship in which we would communicate most days. He has been doing a great job communicating with me. On days that we don't see each other, I almost always get a text from him. But about once a week, I don't receive a text from him, and my text goes unanswered until the following day. When this happens, I feel cranky and worried and upset all day until I hear from him. Mm-hmm. I can't tell whether my bad mood is, is a result of my preoccupied tendencies, in which case I should work on myself, or whether my bad mood is a result of genuine need that that even a secure person would have. What are your thoughts, Bob? Um, this is worth talking about with boyfriend. What happens on that one day? I'm kind of curious about it. <laughs> um, does he take the day off? Um, does he shut his phone off from the world? Uh, you know, like what, what, what that, I think it's reasonable to ask about that, like, um, what that is. And I think that we are often very quick to move to solution 
and um, without gathering facts. So I think if it were me, based on what you wrote, what I would do is I would try to be curious about all of it, not only about um, boyfriend's behavior this one day a week, huh? uh, but also my own response before you move to what you should do and is this preoccupied or normal or whatever. The one thing that you know is that your body freaks out when you don't hear from him um, and you might have a need, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he can't go radio silent one day a week, but you guys actually have to listen to me what you have to do. I don't know what you have to do. What's available to a person is to just talk about it and um, learn about um, and share what happens for each of you. So I hope you'll do that. Yeah. Yeah, what I'll say is that, of course, it's hard to know, and Mm -hmm. going to therapy, individual or couple, is the answer. But Mm -hmm. text anxiety is a classic preoccupation element. Uh, People who have preoccupied attachment, given our current communication milieu, uh, especially if you don't live together, are uh, preoccupied people are almost always anxious about text being returned. And it's, you know, whenever I assess people for uh, attachment style, one of the questions I ask is, how many times a week are you upset that your spouse doesn't text you back or your partner doesn't text you back if they say, uh, oh, well, often, then I'm like, oh, well, then I'm 90, just on that one question, I'm 95% sure that that person will, uh, you know, fit with the conceptualization of preoccupied attachment style. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is because when we are not with our partner, then our anxiety uh, increases. And that's why we say, that's why we call it preoccupation, because you, the individual is preoccupied with attachment security excessively. They're excessively preoccupied. They are excessively worried about loss. They are hypervigilant to an excessive pathological level. And when another person, a secure person, uh, texts someone and they don't hear back, they might be mildly hurt, but they probably just think, well, you know, especially if it's a pattern, they're like, well, this is just one of those days that they don't get back to me. Whereas a preoccupied person, this is absolutely triggering to them and is really physically hard to ignore. So, you know, there's a, there's, there's a, it's just a classic thing. So when you ask, is it a potential part of my preoccupied attachment or would, would anyone have this kind of reaction? I will say that, yeah, it's possible that a secure person might have this reaction, but from the way you lay this whole thing out, I mean, you say it took me years to convince him to commit. Mm-hmm. Um, you also say he's been doing a great job. <laughs> so, you know, it, it sounds like you have these requirements, which are, if they work out between the two of you, then that's great. If they, if he's like, yeah, it's fine that she has these requirements for me, but you're evaluating his behavior. You're not just saying, Hey, I have these needs and he's meeting them. You're, you're evaluating him as if he's an employee, <laughs> which I don't, and maybe that works out and it very well could, but that attitude of he needs to do these things or else um, is uh, potentially part of the issue. Now, we're not going to erase your attachment insecurity overnight. This is where therapy comes in. This is where couples therapy comes in. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I want you to text me back with within a certain amount of time. Now, a, a functional way of saying this is I have preoccupied attachment because of my 
upbringing. And so you could really help me out by texting me back. What you don't say is, I have this requirement for you as my spouse slash employee and you need to do a great job <laughs> you know so and i and not as a your patron i don't know what style you're doing you seem like a self-aware person so i'm going to assume that it's the more uh, healthy version but um so the fact that you're feeling bad about it is fine it's what we do with it right we have to be able to look at that and say i'm cranky and i'm feeling worried and upset because of the traumas i went through not because he didn't text me back the fact that he didn't text you back, I think you rationally understand, is not an actual threat. He just didn't text. You know, some people just don't text back. Um, some people forget, or they're not into texting. Or sometimes people just forget about you, you know? Like, not everyone thinks about their partner all day long. They think about other things. And I know to the preoccupied person that can be threatening or strange, but uh, mm. not everyone thinks about their partner as often. You know, some people are like, yeah, I have a partner, but when I'm at work, I'm not thinking about my partner. Or when I'm hanging out with friends, I'm not thinking about my partner. I love my partner, but I don't think about them in these other contexts. It doesn't mean I don't love them. It just means I just have other things in my brain. Um, another possibility is that he's being passive aggressive. You know, and I've seen this a lot with, you say that he's avoidant. I've seen it a lot with avoidant people is that they have a really hard time communicating vulnerability and they can't. Uh, in a vulnerable way, say to the other person, hey, I don't like your rules. And instead of having that vulnerable conversation, they will passive-aggressively break the rules as a way, uh, in a very dysfunctional way, trying to communicate to the other person, stop having these, stop demanding that I follow your rules. I don't want to text you every day. I think that's ridiculous. It feels like you're just controlling me. But instead of saying that, they will just not text as a way of hoping the other person receives that answer but or that communication but um so that's another possibility i don't know obviously you go to couples therapy and talk about it mm -hmm. um there's also a possibility that he might be worried about getting into a fight i've seen this as well is like well if i respond to the text or it's been two hours since i you know since she texts if i respond now is she gonna get angry at me and then i'm you know i just rather just avoid the whole thing mm -hmm. so is that a possibility you know there's a lot of possible reasons but um obviously having corrective experiences and recovering from the uh, situations you went through growing up that created your preoccupied attachment and for him to recover from whatever, you know, created his avoiding attachment style. Anonymous listener wrote in and said, is it common to hide? Well, first off, let's take a break. What do you say, Bob? Sure. All right, we're back from the break. So I want to do a old patron prize here. We're listing old patrons that have been around for a long time. These are OPPs, old old patron prizes. Wow. We have patrons going back to May of 2016. We are on that month. Holy cow. These eight people became patrons of the podcast all the way back then and have stayed patrons since that time. We have Swathi from Pittsburgh. Wow. We have Abby from Olympia, Washington. Wow. We have Beth, good old Beth from Olympia. I've met Beth. You might have met her actually mm -hmm. at a live event. We have Nathan from Paris, France. Wow. We have Janet from Tacoma. Good old smelly Tacoma aroma. We have, does it still smell in Tacoma? I don't think so. Okay. Because, you know, that was the big thing, the yes. Tacoma aroma, the, yeah. because they had the paper, paper mill. Mills. Yeah. And it would just smell just mm. awful. The whole city. Unbelievable. I can't, I can't imagine how anyone lived there. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. But they must have shut it down because I haven't smelled that in a while. I don't think so, yeah. 
I don't go to Tacoma that often. <laughs> we go through it. But, yeah. uh, Charles from Birming, Birming, Birmingham, Alabama. Is wow. it Birmingham? Is that how they pronounce it? Bir- Birmingham? I think it's Birmingham, Alabama and Birmingham in England. Oh, okay. We got Alice from California, Missouri. There's a town in Missouri called California. Wow. That's interesting. And we have Ariel, who doesn't have their address listed. So thank you, Swathi, Abby, good old Beth from Olympia, Nathan, Janet, Charles, Alice, and Ariel, who have stuck with us through thick and thin on Patreon since 2016. Wow. So this next email is from an honest listener. They write, is it possible to hide your diagnosis from your loved ones? I have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder for a few years, but I have not told anyone in my life, not even my husband. I am too ashamed to tell him that I have borderline, even Mm. though I trust him completely and I don't believe it would change the way he thinks about me. I am relatively open about my other diagnoses. I frequently see people talking openly online about having borderline, and it kind of boggles me. Having borderline makes me feel like I'm a monster. It makes me wonder, is it common to want to hide it? By the way, I would absolutely love to hear Bob's thoughts as well. It's always a delight when he is on the podcast, exclamation point. Bob, what do you think? Thank you. That's lovely to hear. Um, yeah, people, I've noticed two main responses to that particular diagnosis. One is relief. Oh, there's a name for this thing that I'm going through. And the other one is this tremendous shame about it, which I don't know what you think, Kirk, but I think this comes out of um, prejudice in the mental health community about that um, diagnosis. In other words, um, folks with that diagnosis have gotten um, shamed, um, experienced irritation from, and judgment uh, from clinicians over over the years. And, you know, like that's a bad thing to have. It's kind of funny. It's sort of like a surgeon saying, I don't like people with appendicitis, you know? Like right. it doesn't make any sense because, you know, that's why they're there <laughs> to get their appendix treated. You know, what are you going to do, right? Um, um, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with you telling your husband you have that particular diagnosis, but listen to me, I even say it in that way. There's nothing wrong with telling your husband that you have borderline personality disorder. And nobody knows what it means unless they're, you know, a reasonably trained clinician. So talking to him really phenomenologically is probably more interesting and relevant. Like this is what happens inside me when, you know, this part of our relationship or, you know, like whatever, um, whenever it manifests, whenever the difficulties, um, show up, um, he's going to relate to your experience more than he is to some label. And he probably doesn't have the kind of prejudice that you'll see in the mental health community about folks with BPD. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I'll add is that there's a lot of misinformation Mm -hmm. and exaggeratory Mm -hmm. statements online about various personality disorders. And it makes sense that you would want to not have those associations with you. And, and it's a toxic environment on, in our culture and in the, on the internet regarding various different mental conditions. And this is definitely one of them. So it's unfortunate that you have to deal with that. Uh, all right. There, I think there's a number of questions about termination that I wanted to get into here. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Someone, oh, on the Facebook fan page, I believe, a lot of people voted that we talk about how the termination of a client-therapist relationship should work. Okay. And so I thought we would go into that today. What do you say? Sure. Um, so any thoughts 
up front before I go into my notes about the termination, how it should work. Well, I'll be curious to hear what you have to say. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is to be plain and apparent about it, that that we're terminating, um, if that's the case. Uh, usually when I terminate with clients, I like to review their um, treatment progress. Um, and I always talk with them about my role as their ex-therapist. And I usually say something like, um, it's totally cool if you want to hire me again. You're welcome back anytime. And I like hearing from you. So if you feel like sending me an email or give me a call or, you know, whatever, um, that would be delightful. And if you're ever in trouble or in crisis and you need me, um, don't email me. Call me and I'll do my best to um, to assist you. But I I caution people, I don't like to get emails from people when they're in distress because it's just weird. It's like, well, well is there something being asked of me here? I'm not sure. And, I'm, and what my role is, is as your ex-therapist, is that I don't actually do therapy with you anymore. We don't have a, a treatment. We don't have an agreement to do treatment. We will always have a treatment alliance, I think. Let me say that again. We will always have a treatment alliance, and I'll always care. But um, that doesn't mean that we have a contract under which that we're still working contract is a bit of a formal language and i may or may not have if i don't have room in my practice to take somebody on the last thing i'd want to do is make some kind of false promise so um but i love hearing from my old clients it's really cool yeah 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 good so the principles regarding um termination are thus we have an ethical responsibility we have a legal responsibility. We also have to think about what would help the client in during termination. And also, there are possible practical or um, or possible situations that are, there are circumstances we might have to account for. So the first thing to talk about is, you know, why do we terminate? So, Bob, why, why does termination between client and therapist happen to begin with? Because treatment is complete. Right. Um, How do we know treatment's complete? We talk about it. Yeah. How, where are we at with your goals? Are these goals, right. have we met them? Do we have different goals now? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So they've met their goals and they don't have any additional goals to add. Yeah. So the treatment has ended. Yeah. What, what else, why else would one terminate? Um, well, you know, like logistical things like somebody's moving out of state. Um, um, somebody's financial situation has shifted and um, they can't afford to pay for therapy anymore. Right. Um, mm, perhaps um, uh, a difference of opinion about what the problem is and um, uh, therefore in a difference in, in what the belief around what is good treatment. It might be that um, what I do doesn't fit the bill with mm -hmm. what the client says they want or what mm -hmm. they want. Um, um, it could be because of a conflict, mm -hmm. though I hope not, but people do terminate in conflict. Um, uh, yeah, those are a lot of them. Relationship yeah. rupture, that yeah. kind of thing. And you added a few to my list. But another one that I'll say is taking a break. Sometimes people are, are like, I don't want to end therapy, but I think I want to take six months off to just kind of see what happens, right. that kind of thing. Another is is if you're, I think you might have mentioned this, is if your practice is closing, if mm. you said moving a client or the therapist, or if it's outside of one's competence, which you basically uh, mentioned. Okay, so the ethical and legal uh, considerations are that 
the you need to think about as the therapist is terminating the therapist needs to think am i terminating uh, based on dubious justifications like well this client is annoying me you know or um i don't know something about the you know i don't want to treat republicans or something like these are dubious justifications and are considered to be unethical reasons for termination also is there a clear line of termination? You need to make sure that there's a, you know, like with you, you're saying you use this word of ex-therapist. But this is something that I see a lot of therapists not doing very well. It's extremely important ethically and legally that therapists say, we are terminating the professional relationship as of this date, you know, maybe even right now, as of you reading this email or something or us having this conversation, our professional relationship has, has ended. This is an important thing to say because with some clients, they might not understand that and think that you are continuing to your, you know, cause when you see a physician or when you see a psychiatrist, you might not see that clinician for six months. Right. But the problem with being, with having that mindset with a therapist is if the person is suicidal or some other issue, the proper way that therapy is conducted is with some level of monitoring of the client. You can't treat someone with suicidal, ongoing suicidal ideation by just talking to them, to them occasionally. You have to check in with them you know, frequently. And so it needs to be clear that I am no longer your therapist and thus I'm, I'm not responsible for monitoring you. And you shouldn't be expecting that I will check in with you about that. You need to make sure that you seek out other services along those lines. Um, also, sometimes people will confuse termination as if I always have this therapist and they'll even report like I have a therapist. They'll say they'll state it in the present when they actually need to know that I don't have a therapist right now. I used to have a therapist. Anyway, it also uh, needs to be clearly understood. All the elements of termination need to be clearly understood by the client, which usually isn't an issue, but it can be. Also, you need enough time. You, know, you want to try to have enough time in advance of termination. So, for example, if you are thinking about terminating with a client or you're, th or you're moving your practice or something, you need to give them enough time. How much is enough time? I don't know. It's hard to say. I would say at least a couple of weeks, you know, ideally one or two months and maybe even a year. I mean, I've told people way in advance, I'd be like, so in about a year, I'm, I'm going to make this change and I just want you to know, and we need to just keep that in mind as, as we move forward. Um, you know, I'll tell you, Bob, for me in my career, I've had the luxury of really only having to terminate twice, um, like forcibly on a client, you know, in terms of like a transition like this that I, you know, when I was at my internship, they hired me and then I right. um, worked full time at the agency. And then I, instead of quitting when I, when I started going to private practice, I, j I held on to just a few clients and just, and just allowed clients to terminate with me. And then those clients, it was three clients, they they just never terminated with me. So for, I don't know, a long time, I was just going to the agency to, to see three clients. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, it was, I think it was Monday night that I would go there. I'd drive all the way down the Federal Way. Yeah. And um, 
eventually the agency said, we can't have you working here just three hours a week. It's silly. So they fired me essentially. And I had to terminate. And one of those clients actually came with me to private practice. (laughs) So really I only had to forcibly terminate two clients in that moment. The other situation was more recently I closed my supervision practice and had to forcibly terminate with, you know, a bunch of supervisees, post-grad people. And so aside from that, I, you know, because of my uh, career, I haven't really had to terminate with people very often. Uh, What about you? Oh, well, when you put it like that, um, I haven't, I, the last clinic job I had was the last, you know, sort of formal job that I had that was not my own practice. So that was a long time ago and I had to terminate with a, a lot of my, my entire caseload. I think two clients, uh, followed me out of, I believe I had 55. It's an ungodly big (laughs) caseload. Um, and I imagine the caseloads now are even higher. Yeah. Though I don't really know. Um, uh, and then in, let's see. I mean, you're not saying has therapy ended, but you're talking about a specific uh, way of terminating, a forcible termination, like um, some kind of circumstantial change like that. Right. Because um, certainly you and me have had lots of clients come and, and right. do treatment and then end. And, but the, and just to put a fine point on what that looks like is clients will, after a while, start saying, you know, I don't know if I need therapy anymore. And yeah. we might give it another few sessions or right. something. And then they terminate or they cancel an appointment and then they reach out and they say, hey, you know, I think I actually am thinking about taking a break. And then you just terminate in that very um, kind of typical way. So that's that happens all the time. Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, But did you finish your thought? I think I did. Okay. So the other thing is that you need to, during termination as a therapist, you need to provide any recommendations. So medications, ongoing therapy, this kind of thing. You also need to provide referrals and maybe even a transition session if you are transitioning them to someone else. But you don't have to do a transition session where both therapists, the ex and the new, sit with the client. But you need to provide referrals. You also need to have a uh, written record of the discharge. Uh, There needs to be a progress note, essentially. Sometimes you can call it a discharge summary. And sometimes you even want to give it to the client and say, here are my recommendations, this formal written record of these sorts of things. This is something that I see a lot of people not do, that they don't have proper documentation of termination. It's very important. You know, the, the one out of... I don't know, 500 clients where this applies to you, you will definitely thank yourself for having taken the time to write a discharge summary. Because with the very occasional client where, say, they die by suicide and it's a year after you terminated and they seek you out and they pull the file and there's no mention or there's a very short mess, you know, line in a progress note like, this was our final final session. There's no mention of recommendations. There's no mention of summary of treatment. There's no mention of where are where is the client regarding their safety and their risk level. And those, you know, there's just it's just this was our last this session. We talked about how their relationships are going okay or something like that. And 
you know, you, you really need to have it. Now, the thing that people often will say is like, well, you know, it takes time. Well, you get good at it. It takes no time at all. I can write a discharge summary in like literally 11 seconds. It's not hard, but it, it, practice makes perfect. And you need to have someone teach you how to do it. And once you know how to do it, you can write a note in extremely low. I mean, how long does it take you to write your notes by this point? Oh, yeah. No, a minute or less. Sometimes a little longer if I'm really thinking about what happened in the session or trying to remember bits, but yeah, usually a full minute, like it, it takes you like a full minute. Oh yeah. Probably about a minute. Yeah, oh really? You're faster than me. Yeah. I'm, I, I, I don't like to do paperwork. Uh-huh. So, uh, that's why I say 11 seconds. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm sincere and it's real, yeah. but I, you know, I'm not, I'm not writing a novel. Um, and what I see a lot of novice therapists do, and you know, I don't know about you, but for me, <laughs> I remember the very first progress. I, I vividly remember the very first progress note I wrote, and this is before computers, so of course you're you're just writing it by hand. I wrote it, and it was on a piece of paper, and it was both sides of the paper, mm-hmm. one one note, one, note, one yeah. session note, right. and it probably took me forty five minutes right. to write. And uh, yeah, all novice therapists feel that compulsion, and uh, you need to get rid of that for various reasons. Um, the other issue that we, you know, talked about is, you know, what will help the client? Uh, you need, so you need to think about, is this termination in the best interest of the client? Is it really what's good for them? Now that doesn't necessarily dictate what you do, but you need to ask, you need to ask that question. So the other thing here is we need to look at, you know, what does the client need? Cause some clients, they just want to ghost you. They just want to not you know, you'll see some therapists will say, the client just stopped returning my emails, and I think they just terminated with me, and I need them to come in here. And I've actually heard this before, where therapists will demand that people come in and pay for a, a couple of termination sessions. Yeah, you've heard of stuff like that yeah, before, yeah. 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 And, it, you know, maybe, maybe that is the clinical uh, right thing to do, but it sometimes can be a result of the therapist just feeling hurt that they're being dumped and they want to, I don't know, somehow rub the client's face in it or something or exert some kind of control. Mm. So sometimes we want to, you know, be very forceful with a termination session, sometimes not. Also, you, in termination, you want to summarize treatment. This is a very important thing you want to do verbally and in written form. And Usually you want to be strength-based, you want to be warm, you want to talk about successes. And the other thing that I've been talking about with some of my supervisees right now is I like to exchange gifts, if you can. Not expensive gifts, mm-hmm. but like handmade cards or art that you, if you're with kids or really anyone, and you just draw a picture and you give it to the other person. For us therapists, that can be very meaningful, but for a client, it can be extremely meaningful to have a a hard copy of something that, you know, maybe you just get a stone from the garden and you just like, this is a stone I selected that I would like to give you client as a token of our time together. That that's a big deal. I mean, can you imagine like have, do you have anything like that from any past therapist? Oh, do I have anything from past therapist? Like a card or no, I don't think I do. Would it would it feel good to have some something like that? Yeah, it would. Like a little trinket here, or yeah. a little card that said something. You know, it, yeah. I, I think. Good. Yeah. So, uh, it's not often talked about, but I think it's um it's a nice touch yeah. and um and it's that transitional object, yeah. if you will. 
Um, and then the practical aspects determination is, is there enough time for an elaborate termination process? I find that this is something that we need to think about, particularly if the if the client is suddenly moving or if the therapist dies, for example, mm. or suddenly becomes incapacitated right. or something. So sometimes we can't do all the nice things with termination because of practical reasons. Yeah. Also, there can be a possibility that your ethical duty might override your ability to make it a smooth termination. Like, let's say that a client fails to show for three sessions or something. So you, I, if, so depending on the situation, but if I have a client that doesn't show, and I haven't had that, this happen in years, yeah. but when it did, if they just fail to show for a few sessions or say like three out of five sessions, then my policy is to terminate, especially if I warned them. I was just like, so if this happens again, I, I'm just let you know, I, I'll probably terminate um, with you because that's my policy uh, for a variety of reasons that I would lay out for them. And in this situation, well, if they're not showing, they're not going to show for a termination session and you don't have time maybe to have any conversation. So you're just going to terminate over email and there's no time for any kind of that nice stuff, which sucks but it's a practical barrier to terminating what we would say, you know, properly. Yeah. So sometimes we have these practical barriers to our, um, you know, uh, sort of more optimized termination process. But yeah, the, <laughs> uh, I don't know, but anecdotally from you and others and myself, the very common termination process is the client will either say, I want a break or they'll say, or they just won't show or they'll cancel. And then they just, nope, they just don't make any appointments anymore. And then a couple months down the line, you're like, huh, I haven't heard from that client. I guess they've terminated. I guess I need to contact them and make sure that we've formally terminated the relationship. Right. You know, is that, is that a common that's, scenario? That's probably the most common. All right, patron Sarah from France has a question regarding termination. When do I know I'm ready to stop seeing my therapist? Mm. I've been seeing a therapist since 2018 to discuss trauma that I experienced in my teen years. Although it's been very difficult, the therapy has generally been a really positive experience, and I feel like I've recovered a lot from my initial trauma that I wanted to discuss. However, I don't know when to decide that I don't need to see my therapist anymore. I've gone from weekly sessions to seeing her every fortnight. I like that. Ah. that you know, I always like that. Fortnight is, is two weeks? Correct. Um, but at some point, I, you know, I think I figured it out when I, I think I just figured out fortnight is like 14. So it's 14 nights. Oh. So it's two weeks, 14 nights. Right. You just, and you just shove it together, fortnight. Fortnight. Hmm. Um, and I, I is mean, I don't. Is it spelled F-O-U-R? F-O-R-T. F O R T spelled like fort, like a like a military fort. Yeah, but nonetheless, it probably is. <laughs> yeah. We should look it up. Yeah, I don't know. Um, let's see. I really like my therapist. We have a good relationship, yeah. um, and I know I will miss her input. However, it costs me a lot of money, mm -hmm. and it's a lot of time and effort. Mm -hmm. So, how do I know? You know, I, I so essentially what patron Sarah is saying is. I really needed my therapist in the past mm -hmm. and we did a lot of work on my trauma, but more recently I feel like I've 
met that goal, mm-hmm. but I still like talking to my therapist mm-hmm. about more general things and supportive things. I like her in my life. I like, I like the space to vent and talk about things. How do I know if I'm done? Am I, am I done or am I in a different phase? How would you know that, Bob? Um, well, you could certainly talk about it in session and review, you know, what was the reason for meeting and have we met those goals and do we have new goals? Uh, that'd be sort of a formal way of doing it. But, you know, I think you're looking for absolute certainty about such a thing. And there probably isn't going to be absolute certainty. You get something different out of therapy than you got before and you like what you get. And you're doing a sort of a cost-benefit analysis. Is it worth the time or the money or whatever it is that, you know, the expenses are? Um, and it sounds to me like you really already know, just listening to what you've written here, it sounds like you know that you're wanting to end. Um, perhaps you feel shy about speaking up about that. I think that's pretty common. People, um, you know, those kinds of, that's a big transition. So people are shy about um, bringing it up and being explicit about it. But that's probably the, at least the, that's where I would start if I were you. Absolutely. On Discord, Ollie has a question for you, Bob. They want to know, I want to know what kind of herbal tea is Bob's favorite. Oh, I don't drink tea. It makes me feel carsick. Me too. It makes you feel car sick? Well, I'd never put it that way, but yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Wow. Tea and gummy food. I can't, I don't like them. Gummy food? Yeah, like gummy bur- gummy worms, gummy Oh, bears, gummy worms. That, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, sugar in general is making me feel that way lately, like cake and cupcakes mm. and candy and stuff. But yeah, I, me too. Like I love tea. I love the taste of tea. No. I used to, you don't even like the taste no. of it. I love the taste of tea and... I, there's even a, a tea shop downtown Seattle where you can do all these different taste tests on various different teas. Really? And they have this really complicated but really cool way of brewing the tea. And there's all these teas from, you know, China. And, and I tried them all and I said, oh, I love this one. And, and I, you know, really wanted to become a tea drinker. And I bought all the accoutrement. The, the and gear. You know, tea yeah. gear. And, you know, it was about every other time. Uh, that I would feel just kind of blasé, like like malaise. Yeah. And, and it's weird because it's like, why? You know? Yeah. Because you can drink caffeine from coffee, yeah. so it's not the caffeine. No. So what is it? I think it's my experience of tea is it's this really weak flavor. And I just don't actually like it. Now, so that's an interesting thing because I think that's true as well because yeah. when I have weak coffee i will feel similar yeah like dunkin donuts coffee is weak is that right yeah a lot of or or like 7-eleven coffee it's often like or like middle america coffee is often like real weak Weak. and it makes me even though it's like it's just watered down coffee right what's what's the big deal right but yeah it'll it'll make me feel kind of sick yeah yeah what is that it's like if somebody made me a cup of hot water i wouldn't want it yeah, it wouldn't, that wouldn't that wouldn't taste good, and that's what. But tea it wouldn't is make like. you car sick. It would turn me off, and then you put. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what it is about tea. I don't get people. I don't get what the attraction is because it is definitely not an attraction to me. Iced tea, you don't like? No, I'm not a bit an iced tea guy. Hmm. Yeah. What about like vitamin water with like that trace amount? Well, it doesn't make me car sick, but I don't care for that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like we come from a generation of strong. Strong. Drink like right. high C, yeah, oh. Kool Aid. <laughs> <Kool-Aid. laughs> 
My parents would buy the Kool-Aid pack that was not sweetened. So you get the envelope of Kool-Aid, you dump it in, and then a cup of sugar, and then like a half gallon of water. Stir that up and just drink that down. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Another email from old anonymous patron. They say, cancer has left my 48-year-old spouse disabled, Mm. depressed, and in chronic pain. Mm. It feels like he is 73 now. Mm. He has been very low energy and low libido. Mm. I want to ask him about opening up our marriage. I still love him and I don't want to abandon him, but I can't live the rest of my life as a caregiver of his. Mm. I need a partner. Mm. I'd love to have him back, but I don't think that is ever going to happen given his disability. Any resources or direction you can point me in? Bob, what do you think? I don't know any of the resources about such a thing, and I know that that would be a very difficult conversation to have. And it's worth having, um, um, and chances are the thing that you're thinking about, your husband is also thinking about, like the impact of um, his cancer, not just on his own health, but on your well-being and welfare and the and the state of your marriage. So I'm sorry about that. Um, it sounds to me like there's something I'm hearing. Maybe it's the way you're reading it that sounds to me like they feel um, guilty. Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing I'll say old anonymous patron is I'm sorry you're going through this and for your spouse Mm -hmm. and you're bringing up a real practical thing that he is a he's still your partner Mm -hmm. but because of his disability he um, isn't you know I don't want to I don't want to say equal or reciprocating you know he well let's say that his disability makes it so that he can't reciprocate not it just, the way you're used to. Yeah. It's not his fault, and no one thinks that it is, but it'd be as if you had a partner that suddenly became a scientist in the space station, and they were going to be gone literally for the rest of their life, or they were they were going to go to Mars, and they, were gonna, they knew it was a one-way trip. And you're saying to yourself, well, I love my partner, and we talk over, you know, voice mail because there's because it's too far to actually talk in real time uh but i'm not getting my needs met so what and and i don't want to live this way the rest of my life i still have years ahead of me so you know sometimes people do this they will either open up their marriage or they'll get a divorce or you know it's not a angry divorce it's just a a divorce uh, that needs to be done Sort of sad. Tragic. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not going to have a lot of Hallmark cards written about this, <laughs> but it's a practical matter that, that needs to be done. And it doesn't mean that you're a cold-hearted person. Mm-hmm. It just means that it's a, it's a reality. You know, a, a, a common scenario that I've heard from clients and others is you have a, a partner who is essentially um, uh, in hospice, but but like short of hospice you know they they're terminally ill they're bed they're in bed all day and it it's just a matter of time it could be five years it could be five months but they're definitely on their road to dying Mm. and the surviving spouse will sometimes not always think well i think i might be i think i might have met someone (laughs) 
and I might be falling in love with that person, does that make me a monster? And it doesn't. It absolutely does not. But again, you're not going to have a lot of rom-coms about that because we have this notion in our society that 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 makes you a monster, you know, to uh, to abandon your spouse who is struggling in that moment. And you know, if you want to personally feel that way, and your spouse wants to personally interpret it that way, then you know you're free to do that. But it, it's not for everyone. Um, so, and there is such a thing called ethical non-monogamy, and you can look into that for sure. There's also, you know, you're asking for resources. I'm, I'm quite positive there are support groups for people in your position. I, Bob and I don't know about them, of course, but the, the other thing is, is possibly, I don't know, but making sure that you're getting help with him, that you're not the only caregiver of him. Oh, yeah. Because if you are the only caregiver, then that's unfair and can be a huge burden yeah. for you and could deteriorate any kind of love you might feel towards him, you know? Right. So making sure that you have support on that, if you can get it. Yeah, if you can. Hmm. All right, Bob. So on this monumentous podcasting Holy cow. day where we can actually spit in each other's face, what's the final word? Uh, Freud's birthday's on the horizon. I know. I saw that. May 6th. Um, final word. I don't know. I, I You know me. I'm terrible at the sum up. Did you ever watch Jerry Springer? No. He always had a he always had a final word. Oh. But they actually weren't that bad. Really? Yeah. Hard to imagine. Yeah, Jerry Springer was an interesting guy because he actually wasn't what we would think of him to be given the way his show was. He was actually a an intelligent, compassionate person, I think, from from some interviews that I've seen with him. And at the end of every episode, I think, and I never watched the show either, but I but I would see the end sometimes, maybe clips or something, and he would have this little outro. So the the show would just be utter chaos mm-hmm. and a, just a, a total yeah. S show. Right. And then he would have this 45-second thing at the end that had some wisdom to it. So Former mayor of, like, Cincinnati right. or Cleveland or something. Is it and, Cincinnati? I don't know. It was some, somewhere out there. Yeah. And, yeah, he was the mayor of a town. Yeah. And he was, he quit, I believe, because there was a scandal about him hiring sex workers. There's actually oh. a, a a famous speech that he gives, you know, he's, where he's like, he says, I wish I hadn't done that. He, he has he has this thing that he, <laughs> anyway. Um, so, Bob, channel your inner Jerry Springer and like really, you know, have a good 45 second wisdom, oh, no. wisdom filled thing that people can carry with them for the rest of their lives. Shit, that's a lot of pressure. All right, I'll take a run at it. I don't know what's going to come out of my face. You might have to edit this out. Um, You're probably not what you tell yourself are. It's reasonable for you to just inquire and look inside because whatever it is that you are is okay. And um, one perhaps um, perhaps life is a lot of letting go of preconceived notions about what it is to be alive or what it is to be a human and paying close attention to what one actually notices and sees inside or outside. Beautiful. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.